Pasa Mufasa, welcome to the Mycopreneur Podcast. This is a podcast about people solving problems with mushrooms. I'm your host, Dennis Walker. Let's get down to business. Stephen Axford, fungi photographer extraordinaire. Welcome to the Mycopreneur Podcast, Stephen. Hello, Dennis. Thank you. Your mushroom time lapses are stunning and have caught the attention of many around the world, including the production team for BBC's Planet Earth 2, in which your work is prominently featured. Can you tell us about your first mushroom time lapse? And was, was it as artistically and technically meritorious as your more recent sequences? Well, to answer the questions in reverse, no, it probably wasn't as meritorious. But what happened was that my partner, Catherine Marciniak's a filmmaker. She said, have you done any time lapse? And I said, no, I hadn't. And she hadn't done any either. So we headed off to a nearby mountain, Mount Warning, which is the old lava plug of a volcano. And we got up on a nearby lookout called the Pinnacles Lookout, which looks out over the caldera to the, the pinnacle, to the uh, lava plug. And we set up a time lapse with two cameras, but only one intervalometer. So one camera we had to stand next to and go click, click every couple of seconds to get this time lapse of the storm coming across the mountain and straight over the top of us. So we went from sunlight to clouded to in the middle of a cloud as the storm came over the top of us. And it worked beautifully. We thought, oh, this is easy, isn't it? So <laughs> we decided to try some more time lapse. Never proved to be quite as easy as that afterwards. But And then um, I was taking photographs of luminous fungi and I thought, wouldn't it be cool to get a time-lapse of the luminous fungi? So I had a, a second shower. So I set that up and blocked all the windows off so that no light would come in and set up my cameras with a log with luminous fungi on it and did a time-lapse for, I, I think I managed for about probably less than a day because changing batteries was really quite difficult and changing cards to see what the hell had happened. But I, I got enough to, to see that it was worthwhile. And the BBC had contacted me a little bit earlier about luminous fungi because they were interested in putting them on planet Earth too. And initially, they just contacted me for information. And I sent them my trial clips of the time lapse, and they just loved them. Sent out a producer and provided a bit of gear, and we went from there. And the final product was somewhat better than the initial ones. So the initial ones, I think, are still on the internet. All of us mycophiles around the world are very happy that you continued your process from that first time lapse. And I'm not gonna ask you too many technical questions because I know that there is a fungi photography masterclass which you offer bundled with the Planet Fungi movie and that's available at the website that we'll link. So I'm curious, you're taking photographs of fungi, you're sharing them online, your work starts to get noticed and to grow in profile. How did the invitation to go to one of the most remote corners of the world in Northeast India to shoot planet fungi come about? Well, that, that was one of the invitations I got. I, there was three major things that happened. First, there was a blog by the name of, name of This Is Colossal, 
that sent me an email asking if they could feature my fungi photos, which I was quite happy to do. Then there was the BBC asking for the time lapse. Then there was Professor Peter Mortimer in the Kunming Institute of Botany, who sent me an email saying, how would you like to come out to China and help us document the fungi in Yunnan? Not an offer you can pass up. Someone was willing to take you around Yunnan and show you the fungi there. So I went to Yunnan with my partner, Catherine, and I photographed the fungi there. And then pretty well every year since then, so on four separate occasions, I've been to Yunnan each time for about a month photographing fungi. And then we were invited to Northeast India by the Balapara Foundation. So we went there and explored the region. And when we got there, normally we would have mycologists with us. So we would be, well, I, I'd be providing the photographic expertise. The, they'd collect the fungus, they'd take samples back, do DNA sequencing on them, all this sort of stuff. And I'd take the photographs, which they could then put into books and use as part of the documentation. But we got to Northeast India and we didn't have any mycologists with us. The mycologists they'd hoped to get turned up not to be available or I've forgotten what the reason was, but no mycologist. Well, Catherine at that stage decided it'd be a good idea to spend some of the time documenting what we did, which is basically have a good time. But <laughs> there was some there's some hard work in it as well. She did a lot of filmmaking while I was taking the photographs and the end product came out, as you can see, with Planet Fungi, the Northeast India, the movie. Fantastic. And you have had the good fortune to travel to many parts of the world to document fungi. You just mentioned Yunnan, Northeast India. Of course, you're based in New South Wales in Australia. What are some of the other interesting places around the world that you've had an invitation to document fungi in? Well, we went to Nepal, or Nepal as you call it, in 2019. We could possibly go back there again. Northeast India, we've been invited back again. We've been to Myanmar and a short trip to Thailand with the Kunming Institute of Botany again. We spent, we took a holiday in Chile and joined up with some mycologists there down in Patagonia, photographing fungi there, which is a great place. And we've got an invitation to go to Mexico now, which we were meant to go this last year, but certain virus has got in our way. Well, I'm actually based in Mexico with my wife here in southern Mexico, and it is mycologist's paradise down here. We are in Chiapas, and of course, Chiapas, Oaxaca, Veracruz, some of these areas of Mexico, and plenty more. There are estimates of upwards of at least 13,000 different known varieties of fungi. I've heard estimates of 400 plus that are used either in culinary context or medicinally and I'm quite surprised at how little of that information seems to be translated into Spanish or English. A lot of it seems to reside among the Highland Maya and the indigenous people here. So we eagerly await your visit to Mexico to come document and describe some of these fungi. Yeah, well, it, it's definitely on the list because the two places in the world that are most focused on fungi, fungi, I better keep, stick to my own pronunciation of that one. <laughs> You've got a great radio voice. <laughs> the, the two places that are the hotspots for 
fungi in the world are Yunnan and Mexico. In Yunnan, they eat 900 different species of fungi. That's at last count. It keeps going up. It's, you know, there are cities that are dedicated to fungi. They have murals of fungi all over them. There are markets that sell nothing but fungi. So we've had a bit of experience with that, but Mexico adds another dimension because they're the, they, they have documented use of fungi going back hundreds, if not thousands of years with particular interest on the hallucinogenic mushrooms, which adds a, a particular interesting dimension. So we're really looking forward to going out there. I'll probably let other people take magic mushrooms. Though. Yeah, one of the many, one of the prominent features of Chiapas is the mushroom stones. There's quite a large collection, and they're still actively being discovered in uh, sites like Palenque or Yaxchilan or across the border in Tikal. There is an extraordinary body of mushroom stones that exist here that go back, you know, millennia, and and it's pretty fascinating. In one of the videos on the Planet Fungi YouTube channel, which everybody listening now should go immediately subscribe so that you can discover more of Stephen's extraordinary work. I've been scouring it for tips on fire-loving fungi and focus stacking, among many other morsels. You mentioned how there are only a handful of mycologists in Australia and that they find great scientific value in your time lapses of mushrooms since they can't always be out in the field. You state that your role as a, quote, mere fungi photographer has shifted into a role as a naturalist and a collaborator with the scientists. What are some of the responsibilities you've taken on as part of this shift? We get to, we get to see things that most people don't get to see because we spend a lot of time in the forest. And the only way to see what happens in the forest is to spend a lot of time there because every time you go, it's slightly different. So if you, the average mycologist can't spend a lot of time in a forest, unfortunately. You know, we, when we go out to Yunnan, we go on field trips with the mycologists there. But most of their major field trips, we accompany them on now, I think. Most of their time is spent in the laboratory, writing things up and so on. So we get a chance to do things that most people don't. And then the time lapse you get to see the way fungi, the way the mushrooms anyway, actually live. And we'll see things like there's a, the, a little hairy Mycena, um, Mycena sec longisette, if I'm pronouncing it right. But it's a very tiny mushroom covered with long hairs. But when it grows, it comes up and it spins. And it will spin in one direction, get as far as it can, and then spin in the other direction. And then perhaps back to the first way again. So we see all sorts of things like this, which you'll never see if you don't time-lapse something. So we, we see lots of bugs eating fungi. We're becoming fascinated with the way fungi interacts with other life. There's a lot of work being done on the way fungus interacts with, with, other, with plants, the ectomycorrhizal fungi. But the way fungi interacts with animals, there's lots, of, lots and lots of animals 
and insects actually live almost exclusively on fungi. And that's a really important vector in the, in the forest. So truffles are ectomycorrhizal fungi and the trees rely on them, but their spores are spread by animals. So in Australia, little things like betongs and bandicoots live almost exclusively on fungi and they spread the spores, which then help the trees. So plants, animals, fungus all work together. And you can add humans to that list too, I guess. We do positive and negative things, sometimes negative, I think. Well, with more education out there, and uh, it seems like the world of mushrooms are enjoying a mainstream renaissance these days, at least uh, from my perspective. So hopefully more people can seek out bodies of work like yours and other mycopreneurs and uh, get educated and we can start uh, loading more on the right side of things and, and counterbalancing that. So as, as far as seeking out time lapses, I'm very curious. Uh, I know that with your starfish stinkhorn time lapses, which I'm a huge fan of, and probably my first exposure to your work also, you look for the formation of the little egg, which looks like a little quail egg to tip you off that the fungi will soon pop out and say hello to the world. Is it ever a surprise which type of fungi pops out in your time lapses? Or are you able to detect their exact classification from the earliest stages in most cases? Well, usually you get a bunch of eggs and at least one of them will come out. So you can see what is going to happen with the other one. But just looking at the egg, I don't think you could ever tell what's going to happen. But sometimes I'll get eggs and yes, I do get, I don't know what's going to come out. So I am surprised when it happens. Some of the easiest things to time-lapse and also some of the most frustrating because if things work well, like the first time-lapse I did for the BBC, I just collected some eggs, put them in a tray, put a, a camera on them and bingo, the next day these fungus had come up. But often you'll put the camera on the, on the eggs and you'll say, ah, oh, the egg's going to hatch and the fungus is going to come straight up. And it doesn't, it goes out to the left side or the right side or some way you're not expecting. Or it may not come out at all for perhaps a month or six weeks, which can be very frustrating as you are, you'd understand. The egg keeps getting bigger and bigger, but nothing happens. And then when, by the time you got sick of it and you stopped your camera on it, then it pops out. I'm sure that you've uh, learned a lot of patience through this craft. Uh, I certainly have in my studies of mushrooms. I, I think patience is such a key part of working alongside the fungi kingdom. I'm curious about a little bit about your gear setup that you use to capture your time lapses. And how does that differ when you're out in the old growth forests or the jungle, as opposed to inside your shipping container, which you call the fungarium? Well, I, I guess I use similar gear, but I, I keep my best gear for going around the forest. I, I'm also a Sony ambassador. So Sony provides some assistance with equipment and I use the Sony A7R4 for my field work now, which is a 60 megapixel camera and is seriously challenging to get good photographs because you have to use things like focus stacking. Whereas I, I came up 
with using cameras, you know, first six megapixel and then worked up to 12 and 20 and 40 and now 60. But I only started using focus stacking when I got onto the 20 megapixel cameras because you can't get it all in focus without, without focus stacking. But in general, I, I go out into the bush, I've got a, a camera and a good tripod, and that's about all I really need. With time-lapse, I need a bit more because you have to have remote power supply and lighting and things like this, because the fungus probably takes at least days to develop. And you can't, you can't use it in natural light because the sun goes up and down, clouds go in front of the sun, so the light will vary, so you get this flickering effect, which no one, no filmmaker is going to want. So you have to do it in dark controlled conditions and provide artificial lighting. And is that what you're doing with the bioluminescent time lapses? Is you're uh, primarily shooting them outside uh, over the course of a couple of days? No, they're all shot in. Uh, I. I've got a small shed and a half shipping, shipping container. So I, I take the bits of wood with the mushrooms growing on it, put it in the shed and then take the time lapse because the, even the luminous fungi, which are quite rapid in the way they grow, still take a couple of days, you know, two or three days to complete the time lapse to grow from you know, the button stage to starting to collapse, sometimes longer. Yeah, that makes sense as far as being able to control the conditions and, and sort of create the context for the ideal time lapse to, to do it in the shipping container that way. Do you have a favorite mushroom to photograph? No, <laughs> there's too many. Yeah, they what they think there's four million different species of fungus on this planet. So having a favorite would be to say the other three million nine hundred and ninety-nine thousand and so uh not favorites. And the favorites vary from time to time, depending on what's growing well. So as a generalization, I'd say the I don't know whether they're my favorite, but the luminous fungi is definitely the favorite amongst most people. Because uh, very few people have actually seen luminous fungi, even here where there are a lot growing. People are still amazed when they find them because not many people go out at night and turn their torches off. And while your torch is on, it's hard to see them. If you glance away into the dark in the forest, then you might catch them, but they, they tend to be hidden under undergrowth. They're very low to the ground, so you've got to be virtually on top of them. Then they peep out and you go, wow, what's that? Yeah, I think there's quite a few species or different varieties of bioluminous fungi here in Mexico. I've been hearing about them and appreciating some of the photography that's out there. So that's definitely on my agenda for this upcoming season is to get out to the mountains and, and go with a knowledgeable guide and hope or by myself and hopefully come across some I think that would be a, a and I was actually in Australia the first time I became aware 
of bioluminous fungi, I believe was in the Daintree up in Cairns. And someone was telling me about them and, and showing some photos. And uh, so I'm hopefully very, uh, very optimistic about having a chance to start documenting them myself over this next season. Uh, as far as all these different varieties of fungi that you've come across from Patagonia to Nepal to Myanmar and everywhere in between, Northeast India, Yunnan, have you developed an appreciation for the culinary application of mushrooms? And do you like to eat wild forage mushrooms? I'm not a great mushroom eater. I, I really don't eat mushrooms pretty well at all at home. I've eaten a lot more overseas and particularly in Yunnan where we, you know, we'd have a, a meal with mushrooms from a, a mushroom dealer and they'd pick out the very best variety. And some of them, I'd have to say, I really did like because they're that combination of a, a beautiful texture and a beautiful flavor, which most of the mushrooms I buy in the supermarket here aren't. They've either got a good texture and no flavor or a lousy texture and a good flavor. But the best of mushrooms in Yunnan are very expensive too. I remember going to a restaurant in Chengdu and you could pay up to $1,000 for a, a dish with the very best of mushrooms in them. I don't know how good they were, but because <laughs> I didn't have $1,000 to spend. But as I said, I, I've had some beautiful mushrooms in Yunnan. But I do rely on people finding them for me for that sort of thing. Yeah, there's the saying that there are old mushroom hunters and bold mushroom hunters, but there are no old, bold mushroom hunters. So coming down here to Mexico, my wife and I enlisted the services of a local Highland Maya guide from the area, and he knew exactly which ones we could eat. And we indicated we were interested in eating some if, if there were any available in the region. And he filled the bag up for us and sent us home with it. And it was just quite an incredible experience to do what I called spore to fork dining. And uh, I, I never would have had the gall to do it on my own though. I'm very much like a, a conservative foray participant myself. So it's great that there are people out there around the world who have these, uh, this specialized knowledge and can share it with us. I'm curious if you can share anything about some projects you're working on right now. Well, most of the projects we're working on at the moment are to do with film. So my mushroom time-lapse has been in about, I think about 10 documentaries now from everything from Fantastic Fungi, which is the Paul Stamets one just out recently. There was a lot of my time-lapse on that to Planet Earth too, of course, but a lot of other documentaries, several with David Attenborough. But I can't tell you much about films that aren't out yet, but we're working on, one we're working on very extensively, so we're going to have a fairly great involvement in it. And there's another two or three documentaries that people are wanting to put on where I'll probably end up with some of the, some of my time lapse on it. It's a bit difficult at the moment with COVID-19 because a lot of filmmakers, they would be able to travel overseas. They're generally having to stay much closer to home nowadays. But that will change over the next year or two. 
so they're they're the main things. Then we have to we haven't really started to work out what we'll do with travelling because that will probably come in 2022. So we've got a bit of time to sort that out yet. Uh, I think we've got invitations to three or four different countries. We can't, well, we can do it, but it becomes very tiring to travel continuously for say three or four months. Sure, I can appreciate that as a ardent traveler myself. And I gotta say that your adventure, your adventurousness, uh, the adventurousness of planet fungi traveling to Northeast India and these, you know, going to Patagonia. Uh, when I told my wife I would have a chance to interview you, she got very excited because she loves to travel and she dearly misses it during this horrible pandemic. So I said, hey, this fascination I have in fungi could potentially turn into some adventure travel opportunities because the whole world is a stage for fungi. And a lot of these remote corners of the world uh, are where a lot of this knowledge still exists in a very direct sense and, and unbroken lineage going back to ancestral times and such. So thank you for paving the way for us with, with uh, your adventurous filmmaking. I really appreciate it. And I, I also saw Fantastic Fungi with Paul Stamets and the filmmaker Louis in attendance. So uh, I didn't know at the time that those were your time lapses being used, but they sure made an impact on the audience. Yeah, well, it's, it's one of the things that's slightly frustrating for me is that my time lapse can end up in documentaries and my name will always be there in the credits, but it might be very, very, very small. <laughs> well, but, I guess it's not small with Planet Fungi and that, that you're the primary filmmaker and, and featured in that. So I, I would encourage a lot of people are talking, of course, about fantastic fungi and it's made the rounds. So I would encourage people who are listening here to absolutely seek out Planet Fungi. And as I mentioned, I'll link the website so that you can stream it or buy the movie bundled with the masterclass, which is my intention for tomorrow. And, uh, and so you don't have to see the name buried in the credits. You can see it front and center. <laughs> That's one of the reasons we're involved in making a film you know, much more directly involved. So, because there's some of the things with um, the time-lapse that, you know, in a lot of cases, uh, the time-lapse is put on to documentaries with no comment. And sometimes out of context, they're talking about one thing, they'll show a time-lapse of Australian fungi, which doesn't really connect to, it's fungi but it doesn't really connect to the film. So we'll try and get more involvement in creating the film as well as providing just the pictures for it. Bit, not like Planet Fungi, but um, this one will be a bit different. Yeah, uh, just speaking purely from having watched the trailer several times and shared it with friends, as I mentioned, we're going to be watching it as a group tomorrow, which I'm very excited about. I thought it was really cool that you had a little bit of footage, or at least what I saw in the trailer, talking with the locals. And in particular, one scene stands out where you asked a, a woman who was very gracious to be, you know, sharing the, the knowledge with, with everyone, if she, how she knew a particular type of mushroom was poisonous. And she kind of mentions nonplussed 
how she took it home and she ate it and she broke out in sweats and all that. So I think that's very cool to, to sort of share with the indigenous perspective or the locals perspective, which I didn't get from watching Fantastic Fungi. Yeah, we, we started getting into what we call ethnomycology, which is looking at the way the local people interact with fungus. And most of our knowledge or most of anyone's knowledge on fungi, on the way it's eaten and things like that, comes from ethnomycology. Like in Mexico, the as you said, you'd go out and look for fungi, but you'd have to take someone who knew, because the only way to tell whether a fungus is poisonous or not is to actually eat it. And I'd prefer someone else did that. Our friend in uh, Megalia, who we just knew as Kong, which actually just means sister in Kazi. But she spoke no English at all. Yet she could communicate beautifully exactly what happened to her when she ate that fungus. You didn't need to speak the same language because she was speaking in a mix of Kazi, which is the local language there, and Nepali and Assamese but no English. And I find that to be a recurring theme around the world. As I mentioned earlier, there is such a rich cosmology and, and appreciation for mushrooms in the local cultures around here in Chiapas. But to find out information about them or to learn more when I was I've been seeking more knowledge on them, I, I pretty much only have two or three dissertations that have been published that are very academic and that describe uh, you know, somebody from the University of Florida living up there and doing some field work and field research. There's not a lot of information about these ancestral practices and this body of wisdom that's translated for the common folk or for us, or for, for people like myself, who I would describe as a pinning mycophile. So I'm very optimistic that with more of these micropreneurs, as we call it here, are going to start to translate this knowledge and uh, to start to connect with these communities and bring the knowledge back into the forefront of the, the culture here. So it's not just siloed away in pockets, very remote pockets up in the hill, but rather something that people can access in their daily lives. And uh, in the United States, we've been seeing a proliferation of interest in more specialty mushrooms like the lion's mane and turkey tail and uh, rishi, things like that. As you described in your experiences in Australia and the, and the market, very much in San Diego or in California, where I'm from, you see button mushrooms, portobello mushrooms, and those funny little mushroom slices that are at the salad bar when you go out to eat, or you used to go out to eat before COVID. And I didn't really have an appreciation for this immense diversity of the fungal kingdom. And it was only in the last couple of years and through traveling that I started to see chanterelles and morels and lobster mushrooms. And of course, spiraling from there. And, and that journey, I feel like is just starting because there are just, as you described, 4 million plus types of mushrooms right now. And many of them are still undescribed in modern science. And uh, I, I think I, I saw in one of your videos, you mentioned how a lot of the fungi that you come across and you photograph, either they've been very rarely described by science and in academia, or they've never been described at all. 
Well, just just to use one as an example, we it's shown in the film that we go to most places and we usually ask if there are luminous fungi around because the people who know will be the locals. So in Megalia, which is, according to the Guinness Book of Records, the wettest place on Earth, so as you'd expect, there are a lot of mushrooms there and we asked people if there were luminous fungi and said, yes, of course. So we went and found luminous fungi, but those fungi had never been documented to science at all. So they had no name, no scientific name, but the locals knew them perfectly well because how could you miss them? You'd go down a forest path at night and you'd see these little bright pinpricks of light. So the local... Local people know a lot more than we give them credit for. There's a mushroom that we get around here. It's a beautiful blue mushroom, which is very unusual. It hasn't been named yet. We hope it'll be named this year. But the only other people I've met, and no scientists had known about it, but I was walking through the forest one time and crossing a stream and there was a guy with a kayak who was kayaking down the, the stream. And he asked me what I was doing. I said, yeah, I'm taking photographs of mushrooms. And he stopped and said, have you seen the blue one? And he knew about the blue one, but no one, no, uh, no scientists did because very few scientists get out there and none, none obviously have talked to him before or seen the blue mushroom. So local knowledge, even if it's recent local knowledge like that, contains a lot more than scientific information does. Well, scientific information is absolutely necessary because it describes exactly what the mushroom is whereas the local knowledge is, well, it's a blue mushroom and it grows when it's wet. Not much more than that. I, I have observed similarly incredible different colored fungi here that I've never personally seen anywhere in any picture described anywhere. Just a walk in the forest, different purple mushrooms. And uh, uh, one popular one we see a lot around here are these yellow, or sorry, orange cups. And they are very prolific. They grow all over the jungle and just the different textures, the different shapes, the different functions of fungi are really mind blowing. And I think Trad Cotter said it best where somebody asked him if he likes magic mushrooms and he said, aren't all mushrooms magic? Like there is a <laughs> tremendous amount of magic that we're really just starting to connect with, I think as a, as a culture, thanks in a large part or in some part to time lapses and, and outrageously beautiful documentation that you and other fungi photographers and macro photographers are providing. I think it's absolutely stoking the interest of more and more people as they're able to observe this incredible phenomenal ally and, and very ancient organism that, you know, some could argue they're the dominant species on the earth, which I think is fascinating. That's about all that I had prepared. And I, I have one more question for you. We'll call it a parting shot. Is there any advice that you can give to aspiring fungi photographers and pinning mycophiles regarding how to get the most out of your photographic expeditions into the world of mushrooms? 
you know, take your photographs when there's no sun. A lot of a lot of people go out and they try and take photographs and they think sunlight is good. Have a tripod because if you take photographs when there's no sun, it's going to be a longer exposure. So go out with a tripod or at least something you can rest the camera on. It might be a, a little bean bag or could be anything cheap. But take the photograph in overcast conditions because the colours come out more. The best time to photograph fungi is immediately after rain because it's nice and overcast, nice dim light, and the colours really pop out when it's been washed with rain. That fungi, like most things, if it's been out in the sun for a long time, will tend to fade, not look nearly as um, spectacular. That people often comment on the colours in my photographs. And that's partly that I live in a place where there's a lot of coloured fungi. But in general, in rainforests, you go into the forest, the fungi will be more colourful than out in the fields. And the fungi that people eat are generally out in the fields where they're, they're growing a lot of them. They're in degraded forests. I think morels like degraded forests. A lot of, a lot of fungi that people eat grow in degraded forests. But uh, the fungi that are really beautiful tend to grow in old growth forests. That's where you get most of them. So go into the forest, enjoy the forest. Even if there aren't any fungi on that particular day, there'll be lots of other things. The forest is always interesting, particularly if you stop. That's what I love about photography in general, but fungi photography in particular. You'll see a fungus, you'll go to photograph it and maybe spend five minutes, ten minutes there. And in that time, you'll start to notice other fungus that you hadn't noticed when you were walking along. So you start, and within a, a few feet, you'll find others. I remember one time I was photographing this beautiful green fungus down in Tasmania. And I'd been searching for it for a couple of years, and I found one. And I was kneeling down photographing it when I finished. I got up and I realized I was kneeling in a whole patch of them. But green fungus on green moss isn't the easiest thing to find. I just hadn't seen them and there were dozens of them. So take your time and enjoy the forest. And those are great wise words to part with right now. So Stephen, it's been an honor to have you on Mycopreneur. I very much look forward to watching Planet Fungi with some of my close friends tomorrow. And thank you for the awesome work that you're doing and are continuing to do. And thanks for joining us on Mycopreneur. My pleasure. There's so much to cover in the mushroom universe and so many mycopreneurs leveraging the infinite potential of fungi to create a more ecologically balanced, inclusive, and equitable world for all of us mischievous little monkeys. I am completely stoked that you've chosen to spend some of your hard-earned time in our little corner of the mycoverse. Hop on the gram, say what's up, at Mycopreneur Podcast. That's the handle. Don't get it twisted. We've got the full suite of social media up and running. Twitter, Mycopreneur. Got the YouTubes dialed in, Mycopreneur. Drop us a line. Tell your grandma and your kooky uncle. Tell your wife and your kids. If you're a Mycopreneur yourself, you want to hop on the pod, by all means, willkommen, bienvenidos, welcome. Don't be a stranger. Let us know your thoughts on this episode 
And also let us know what you want to hear in future episodes. This is a team effort. Thanks for stopping by the Micopreneur Podcast. Have a lovely day. We'll see you back here next week. Thank you.